All right, and Podcast Faithful, one more quick note. We are almost at the end of the year, and just like Scrooge and Bob Cratchit, we are assessing our ledgers. And guess which one of us is Scrooge? Uh, I think we know. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. You weren't. I wasn't asking you. I'm pointing at somebody, but no one can see. We weren't asking you. Okay. Anyway, we want to say a huge thanks to everyone who's already donated to the Dinner Party Download these past couple of weeks. You know, making the show takes more resources than our excellent sponsors can provide, and your donations, in whatever amount, go a long way. That's right. If you haven't given yet, and you've been enjoying the show gratis, perhaps for years. We know you're out there. We've got a fun and festive way to chip in and keep this arts and culture conversation going. Just text the word ICEBREAKER to 677-677. Then we will text you a joke from our archive and a link you can click on to donate to the show. The joke will be delightfully bad, Mm. but your donation is delightfully tax deductible. So thanks a million for your support. We really couldn't do this without you. That's right. And now since we're on the subject, here's your icebreaker. All right. Here's a joke. What do you get when you cross a snowman with a vampire? I don't know. What do you get? Frostbite. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newnham. And from APM, American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download. Culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Jenny Beth and Aisha Hassan of the band Savages. That'll break the ice. A fittingly wintry joke for this, our special holiday episode. That's right. Grab some nog and huddle close to your listening device because we've got a festive hour in store for you. Our guest list includes Zoe Deschanel and M. Ward of the band She and Him. They're here with holiday music suggestions. And none other than Parks and Recreation star Nick Offerman tells us how he landed the enviable job of sipping scotch beside a Yule log. Best gig ever. Also, Vanity Fair movie critic Richard Lawson shares his favorite holiday-ish movies. And we hear the origin story of the charity song that launched a thousand charity songs, Do They Know It's Christmas? They do. Indeed they do. But first, you can't talk about the holidays without talking about gift giving. Uh, The cardinal rule of which is always, of course, it's the thought that counts. Alas, some gift givers don't seem to put much thought into the process. And to prove it, this week we asked listeners to tell us about the lamest presents they ever received. Hi, this is Kate from Hobart in Tasmania. The worst gift I ever got was from my mother. She gave me a ceramic moose head egg separator. And what you do is you crack the egg into the moose's head and the egg white is supposed to come out of the nostrils, which is pretty gross. But the silver lining is that it has been awesome fun to re-gift to friends and see the looks on their faces when they open up the package and wonder what they're going to do with that. Hi, this is Barb from Washington, D.C. The worst Christmas present I ever got was a really expensive bottle of perfume from my well-intentioned stepmother. It made me smell like rotting garbage. I can only compare it to some friends who um, hiked the Appalachian Trail, and when they got in my car, they smelled like dead animals and rotting milk, and this was worse. Hi, this is Kika from Montreal, Canada. Uh, The worst gift that I ever got was from an aunt of mine who's an artist. It was a schmaltzy oil portrait uh, painted of me based on an unflattering photograph that had been taken of me at least a decade earlier. I had been wearing a dirty dress that I had been gardening in, and the worst of it was that it was from a time when I had been going through a divorce, and she painted it for me as a wedding gift. 
this is Andy in Los Angeles, and the worst gift that I have ever received was the present that I got when I graduated high school from my grandmother, my grandfather's high school ring. And the sentiment was completely right. But it was kind of weird. My, my grandparents weren't married anymore. I didn't go to the same high school as my grandfather. And for my brother's high school graduation, he got a car. Hey, this is Cookie from Fort Worth, Texas. The very worst Christmas gift I ever got was a lighted toilet paper roll. It had a picture of a snowy mountain, and in addition to that, it played White Christmas. The reason it was the worst gift is that I was expecting an engagement ring. <laughs> My God. Uh, there you go. Thanks to everyone who bequeathed us the gift of stories about terrible gifts. Lemonade from lemons. And, of yes. course, if you did receive a musical toilet paper roll... <laughs> You're obligated to say thank you. I'm afraid that's true. But, folks, we promise the rest of this holiday show will be full of nothing but wonderful gifts for your ears, mm -hmm. starting with our first guest, food show superstar, Alton Brown. Yes, for over a decade, his Peabody-winning show, Good Eats, took us down fascinating wormholes in the food universe, mm -hmm. weaving in science and history and humor, and saving us from overly precious foodieism. That's right. He's presided over Kitchen Stadium on Iron Chef America, and he stormed stages around the country with his new culinary variety show, Eat Your Science. Oh, and he's just taken his new cookbook, Everyday Cook, out of the oven. It's got recipes for everything from cider house fondue to, quote, lacquered bacon. Mm, and Alton, welcome. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. And happy to have you, sir. Um, bacon, I think we can all get on board with. We are suspicious of the lacquer. Please explain. Basically, um, what, what I do is I, I cook bacon in such a way that it basically gets a, a hard but very, very thin candy coating. So it reminds me mm. of a lacquered piece of furniture. So it's, it's a perfect uh, balance between uh, a candy and smoked pork products. Oh, mm. God but, bless but you. At, at risk of blasphemy, are we, aren't we not? at peak bacon? You know, I'm, I'm, I can walk away now. I mean, I, I think that I needed to kind of have the last word. And this, this is my last word. I'm done. This is drop, drop, pig, walk out. I'm, I'm done. Well, bacon isn't the only uh, kind of, uh, although bacon can be eaten at every meal, but you also soup up another breakfast item. You have nitrous pancakes. This isn't a yeah. race car pancake. Can you please explain? Well, this is this is a this is a, a pancake batter that is dispensed out of a nitrous oxide foamer. So um, it, it's like you get the joy <laughs> of having pancakes and squirting essentially you know whipped cream at the same time. If I, if I had that at dead shows years ago, oh, that would have been amazing. You could get nutrients. Well, I'm I'm not I'm not going to get into the other ways that you could abuse that system. <laughs> uh, but okay, yeah. All right, maybe you can address that later in the show when we ask you some holiday etiquette questions. But right now, we wanted to ask you three fundamental questions about the holidays and food. I am ready. First of all, this is a big one. Why does Christmas taste like Christmas? In other words, like why have certain spices become associated with the holidays? Nutmeg, for instance, doesn't seem seasonal especially. Well, when it comes to spices... All right. Nobody, nobody gives a crap about seasons when it comes to spices. Most <laughs> spices are, are grown and harvested on the other side of the planet. Sure. Um, and they take a very, very long time uh, to get where they're going. But the reason that Christmas tastes the way – actually, the holidays uh, taste the way that they do is because there was a time when only rich people had spices. 
And it was a way for them to show off their wealth, to gift their wealth mm. um, in, in a, a variety of either baked goods or, or liquid goods, you know, eggnog being one of those. And we just kind of took that on so that as, as spices became more and more available, more and more people picked that up because it was something that, that rich people did. And so now uh-huh. that is why we have that association. But, but also it kind of does make sense because these are generally what are referred to as warming spices. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they tend to make you feel warmer on the inside. And of course, there are some actual chemical reasons for that, especially uh, with nutmeg, which which has meristicin, which uh, is also an ecstasy. Uh, so it wow, tends to make nice. uh, it tends to make for well, you got to take a lot of it though, uh, to like you know Charlie Parker amounts, oh. which is what he used to do. <laughs> we can all drink a lot of pumpkin spice lattes and get that. You know, but that's not that's not the thing. That wouldn't get you nearly <laughs> enough. You would have to probably drink an entire tanker truck of spice <laughs> lattes to do that. Hmm. Um, right. But that's that's why we have that association. All right. Well, another uh, holiday tradition we'd like you to help us understand is fruitcake. And this is almost a cliche, but we, we don't really know why. Why are fruitcakes so bad? Well, not all fruitcakes are bad. The problem is is that um, that several of them are bad. <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> and it's one of those foods that, I mean, for instance, I, I have, uh, if you go to my website, you can look up my free-range fruitcake, which I think is absolutely delicious. Yes, it's full of fruit, but not the kind of sick candied, uh, radioactive colored fruit that some people really, really like. Uh, I live in Georgia, and there's a famous fruitcake, should be infamous, um, from the town of Claxton. And uh, this is one of those cakes that is is so dense that it's actually not a cake anymore. It's, it's moved into the realm of, of candy product and has um, uh, colors in it that don't appear anywhere in nature. Um, I mean, anywhere. Maybe maybe in a known galaxy. Sure. Yeah. But there are game. a few people, there are a few, yeah, video games, there are a few people that, that like them. And, and because of that, these things are manufactured and shipped out all around the country. And there aren't as many as we think. There's only 13 of them, uh, actual fruitcakes. They're just, you know, shuttled around and, and re-gifted so often that we think there's a lot more of them. But because of that, a fruitcake got a very, very bad reputation. Um, it, it actually comes from from a form of pudding, a, a steamed or boiled cake uh, mm. that is English in origin. It was actually really, really delicious. Calorie dense, also full of spices, typically um, a good deal of nut and fruit because it's supposed to be a symbol of of the, of the harvest, the kind of wellspring sure. of the harvest. Um, but it can be delicious and actually should be delicious, especially when you soak it in enough uh, cognac or brandy to knock a, a, a Cape Buffalo <laughs> on it. So, sorry, I just said like... It's okay. It's okay. We'll bleep it both times. So um, there's 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 powerful reasons uh, for for eating this stuff when it's good. So tell so is that what makes your fruit different? Um, you just soup it my fruitcake is different because number one, I, I use dried fruit that I then rehydrate in liquor, uh-huh. uh, bourbon, uh-huh. uh, and, and and cognac primarily. But also, mm. I pay a lot of attention to the actual flavor and texture of the cake, which is is more like almost like a banana bread mm. kind of uh, flavor. Um, it's got whole wheat flour in it, so it's it's dark. Um, and I think it's pretty delicious. It's all interesting. Right. That's what we do with Rico on Mondays. We rehydrate him with yeah, liquor. Yeah, he comes nice. in all puckered it's up. Very and... good. Well, there you <laughs> go. When you're when you're when you're dehydrated, there's nothing like more liquor, right? Well, you bring up two points that I think we're going to hit in this next question: uh, eggnog. Yes. Like, why? Eggs in a glass with booze, how did this become a, a, a holiday thing? It's like an omelet in a glass before you cook well, it. Well, first off, why not? And no, it's <laughs> it's not like an omelet in a glass. It's like melted ice cream in a glass, actually. Well, that's true. Um, you know, this this is a, a food that, that actually descends, again, from Britain, something called posset, a very uh, thick, actually curdled milk and booze with, again, a lot of spices. We're hitting the spice notes again uh, oh, sure. because eggnog is almost 
almost defined by by the presence of nutmeg. Sure. Um, but uh, the reason it's called nog, at least we think, is because nog used to be a very, very uh, kind of strong beer, English mm. beer, and it was drunk out of a cup called a noggin. So we think that that, uh, that happened. But the, the reason that, it, that it's become the drink that it has in America is that early Americans had three things going for them. One was milk. We had a lot of milk, so we had a lot of cows. Two, eggs. And by the way, you've got to have, it's actually more dairy than eggs. A lot of people had chickens or access to chickens. Three, rum. People don't realize that colonial America yeah. was pretty much saturated with rum. Huh. It was it was more common than clean water by a long shot, huh. a lot more popular than beer, and, and drunk by everyone, including school children. So mm. um, wow. putting those three things together... Uh, one tastes awesome. Two can actually preserve the Again, uh, the nutrients mm-hmm. in both the eggs and the milk. I make most of my eggnog in June or July for for the Christmas season. So I actually refrigerate it and store it and allow it to age for months. And I know a few people that won't crack open an eggnog till it's aged for two years. And what does that do by aging it? How does it enhance the experience of drinking it? Well, it enhances the experience because, believe it or not, the enzymes and the proteins in both eggs and milk and and some of the fat even kind of mingles up with the with the ethanol the the alcohol, mm, the alcohol uh, yeah. concerned as as well as some of the other chemicals and they kind of party um, and and over <laughs> a series of time can create new compounds so it's far more complex once it's been allowed to to age for a while it's a very very different drink when it's aged. Alton Brown, his live show, Eager Science, hits the road again next year. Till then, you'll find his cookbook, Everyday Cook, which includes the last word on bacon Mm. in bookstores everywhere. We hope it's the last word. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we got more holiday specialness lined up. Alton will return to answer your holiday etiquette questions. Zoe Deschanel and M. Ward, a.k.a. She and Him, share their Yuletide party playlist. And funny man Nick Offerman explains the difficulties of sipping whiskey by a fireplace. Poor Nick. Sad. When the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and you're joining us in the midst of our 2016 holiday special. Thank you for attending. Yes. In a few minutes, food TV star Alton Brown will return to answer your holiday questions. Plus, Vanity Fair movie critic Richard Lawson explains why Iron Man 3 deserves a place in the Christmas movie canon. Makes sense. But first, we receive guidance on a key ingredient for holiday good times music. That's right. You may know actor Zoe Deschanel from her hit TV show New Girl, or you might have seen her in the modern holiday classic movie Elf, but that's just the half of it. She's also a talented musician. Zoe and acclaimed singer-songwriter M. Ward have put out several albums together under the name She and Him. Two of those happen to be holiday-themed, including their most recent, called fittingly for our purposes today, Christmas Party. They stop by our studios to share a holiday playlist, but first... I asked if they had any special holiday traditions of their own. Going to one of those farms and chopping down your own Christmas tree, that's not non-traditional. That's pretty traditional. I mean, but in in this day and age, I think that's actually old-fashioned, but I don't know if a lot of people do do that. that? Well, where I live in Portland, last couple years we've done that, and Mm. that's a great tradition. Maybe it's harder in L.A. I don't know. Yeah, you don't find a lot of pine tree farms. Yeah. So, so you do this, and then do you feel like, do you think it adds, like, a special sense of appreciation when you bring it to your home that you fell that tree? Yeah, it's the best smelling tree you can bring home because it was just growing out of the ground moments mm-hmm. earlier. And um, you feel like it's 
you know, somewhat environmentally responsible because it's farmed directly for this purpose. Mm, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, you recycle the tree. It's very Portland <laughs> to be so environmentally responsible. But, you know, also that you, I can see that cutting both ways because when you first said that, I was thinking of, you know, when people go hunting, but they go to like a game preserve where the animals yeah. are already fenced in. Yeah. And it feels a little bit like cheating. Right. Like fishing in a stocked pond. Yeah. Of. So, I mean... Are you tempted to ever go renegade and maybe just find your own tree in the wilderness? Someday I will. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And Zoe, in L.A., you do not chop down your own Christmas tree? No. Um, and I can't really think of anything like that unusual or okay. odd making that I Christmas do. Making Christmas records. We make Christmas records, records in, in June, so that is, <laughs> that is unusual. Well, I was going to ask you about that. So, yeah, you guys have done two Christmas albums. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, Zoe, you were in Elf, one of the bigger holiday movies of the last couple decades that's true are you a holiday enthusiast or is this just happened some for some reason i love christmas so much growing up i'd start planning again the next christmas on december 26th you know (laughs) so i really uh you're a fan i just i love cooking so it's one of the only times a year that i'm not so busy that Mm -hmm. i can really plan a menu and put together a really nice meal and like spend the time yeah Well, Matt, do you have a favorite holiday dish you look forward to? Well, my grandparents are Mexican, so I steer towards those things, especially Mm. tamales is like the, you know, New Mm. Year's Eve uh, tradition. Mm. Holidays make me think about food, but really everything makes me think about food. (laughs) (laughs) So you're about to give our audience these gifts of songs. So let me ask you this question. What is the greatest gift you've ever received? Well, it's hard to beat music, and I, know, I realize we're going to talk about that later yeah. on. But the first thing that comes to mind is watching uh, Charlie Brown Christmas when I was a kid and really getting completely in love with the Vince Guaraldi uh, trio. And mm. so that is forever linked to Christmas for me is, is his music, and uh, he, I think he's a genius. That makes so much sense that you uh, you have a half dozen albums, you are a very talented guitarist and producer that you were a little kid and you got captivated by the score, not the cartoons. Yeah, it was just <laughs> such a it's such a unique uh, soundtrack to a cartoon. And yeah. um, I was, uh, yeah, entranced at a very early age. Uh, Zoe, do you remember, is there a gift? For me, actually, my whole life around Christmas, the oldest station would shut down at Christmas and they'd just play like a loop of Christmas songs. And a lot of them were from Phil Spector's Christmas album, A Christmas Gift for You. Mm. And for years, every time one would come on, I'd be like, this is the best sounding thing I've ever heard. (laughs) And I'd be like, what is this? And then I could never find it, you know, because it was pre-internet. You couldn't like look, you know, up a lyric and find a song. And then finally, my dad got it for me. That was a great Christmas gift because that that is an amazing record. Yeah. So on this album, you have a song, uh, Marshmallow World. Yeah. In that, you're kind of stripping down a Darlene Love and, and Phil Spector song. When you're covering a song, how do you know when to kind of stop peeling back the layers? How do you decide how to do an orchestration or what, what to keep in and take out? Pretty organic process. I think we just kind of play around with stuff and see when it starts sounding really great and, like, when to stop adding things. Hmm. I mean, you can add and add and add and add. Yeah, for I guess for us, for cover songs, I think the best jumping-off point is um, a little bit of process of elimination. And if a, a version of a song has already been done with, you know, a, a bell choir and, you know, 20 <laughs> violins, let's yeah. not have those things and, and see where it takes us. And then we know it's done just by following our gut. You just know it. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. 
Yeah. All right. Well, then, in my gut, as host, I know that this part of the conversation's over. <laughs> Thanks, you guys, so much for chatting with me. Mm-hmm. And now on to your playlist. We would like to share with you our sort of Christmas, sort of not Christmas playlist. As a gift to you, listeners. From us. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Our first song for our dinner party playlist is one of our favorite songs by NRBQ. It's called Christmas Wish. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. NRBQ is one of my all-time favorite bands. I feel like they're the American Beatles. Joey Spampanato's voice always hits me. It really stands out, and you know it's heartfelt. There's magic in This song, Christmas Wish, is focused more on the peace on earth and let's hope every kid in the world gets a present at Christmas time. What do you think, Zoe? They have their own sound. They're a little bit stripped down. I love the guitar rhythm, too. It's a very sweet song. I think at this moment we we might be sharing some eggnog, maybe in a pitcher. Definitely. There's a dairy-free eggnog mm. on the market now that I, I recommend to everyone listening to this. Mm, that's good stuff. Our second song is by Joni Mitchell, the song River. It's coming on Christmas, they're cutting down trees, they're putting up reindeer and singing songs of joy and peace. Oh, I wish I had a river, I I could skate skate away. It's not a Christmas song, but it does have Christmas themes in it. Snowing outside. Yeah, it's snowing outside. Rivers are freezing over. It almost takes you to this Robert Frost place that most Christmas songs are incapable of. I wish I had a river so long I would teach my feet to Her vocals on this are particularly melancholy. I think a couple of her records that I listened to a lot as a teenager had a lot of the ups and downs I could relate to. It really spoke to me. I made my baby cry. It's kind of taking the party down to a more pensive place. This would be like around the time that you'd be having a a really heartfelt conversation with a family member or a friend. Our third song is one of our favorite songs by the Beach Boys. It's called Little Saint Nick. Amazing harmonies, as per always. And they're very good at getting the Christmas party atmosphere. They had a whole record that was just a party. Yeah, it's called Beach Boys Party. It's 
Zoe and I both grew up in Southern California, so we're forever attached to that sound that Brian Wilson created. I grew up four minutes from the beach. Christmas to me isn't snow, it's like Beach Boys. There's something about the Beach Boys that will always feel like home. You know, whenever we talk about Christmas, it's about home and family and friends, and uh, it's all interconnected. We're going to close out this playlist by adding one of our own songs called The Coldest Night of the Year. Maybe, baby, it's late and you'd better go hoots after three. It's kind of like the 60s answer to Baby It's Cold Outside, but it's a little bit less of the predatory undercurrent. And more of a, we're stuck in the cold, and let's make the best of it. Out in that storm, baby, it's cold out there. Happy holidays. Cold, it's cold out there. Getting colder, matter of fact, better cuddle up here. It's the coldest night of the year, Zoe Deschanel and M. Ward, a.k.a. She and Him. Their latest album is called Christmas Party. And guess what it's a great accompaniment to? I'm stumped. Mm. By the way, if you found that list helpful, there is more where that came from, ladies and gentlemen. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org to hear playlist suggestions from everyone from Angel Olsen to Pusha T. Or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Let's And now that we have music covered, it's time to learn some holiday party manners. That's right. Each week, our listeners send in questions about how to behave, and returning to help answer them is Alton Brown. We spoke to him earlier in the show about his new cookbook, Everyday Cook. He is also the man who, among other things, was the toughest judge on Food Network Star. So he clearly has ideas about how things should be. And Alton, uh, folks sent in etiquette dilemmas surrounding the holidays, including we should note Thanksgiving. I guess we can bank your advice till next year on that. Are you ready for these? Oh, gosh. Yeah, sure. Hit me. All right. This first question comes from Nancy in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And Nancy writes, given that Thanksgiving leftovers are the best, should you send your guests home with leftovers and Tupperware or just invite everyone back the next day? Which leads to the next question, should you have everyone intentionally make way too much food? Mm. So Nancy's a leftovers fan. You know, typically there's going to be leftovers no matter what. I don't think you have to ask people to make a huge amount of food. Yeah. Um, because, like, if everybody brings something, and that's the rule it, it, when I'm cooking. I'm, I'm just like, I'm going to do turkey on one side, and everybody else bring, you know, better bring something else so you don't get any turkey. Um, I am a big believer in the reusable, resealable containers, mm. Ziploc bags, whatever. And I send people away with food. Because number one, they've already been in the house. I don't want them back tomorrow. And, and getting out nice. all those containers and setting them out is, a, is, a, is kind of a symbolic invitation to get out. I see. Oh, so the take, take your leftovers and be gone, uh, which I think at the end of the day, you're, you know, you're ready. You're ready for them to just go. But it sounds like maybe Nancy's a little less misanthropic and like maybe wants to have them come come back the next day. So, I mean, would you would you actively dissuade her from... Absolutely not going to dissuade her at all. If she wants to be that kind of control freak, 
speak and word over people <laughs> using the power of leftovers to control them. Okay, I'm willing yeah. to let it go. Sure, Nancy, if that makes you happy. <laughs> yeah, if that's what you're all about, Nancy. <laughs> Here is something, and this isn't a, a specifically holiday-themed question, but it does seem like a scenario that could happen in a holiday party situation. It's from Jason in Seattle, and he writes, I was just married. During the reception, I went in for a hug from a close friend who was holding a glass of red wine, and it spilled all over the back of my suit jacket. My friend apologized and took the jacket to the bathroom to clean it up, but it was mostly in vain. The suit went to the dry cleaners, came back unwearable. Problem is, this wasn't going to just be a suit for the wedding, but also for the future. It had been tailored. Should I expect my friend to help cover some of the dry cleaning or to pitch in to help replace the jacket? Wow. The answer is is clear and abundant. Um, absolutely not. You're responsible for the clothing you wear in any situation where people are going to be hugging while holding glasses of <laughs> sure. of, of liquids. Yeah. Um, you know, and what kind of what kind of suit? I mean, look, I don't go into any public environment unless I'm wearing a dark suit. In which case, the wine doesn't matter. What was he was he wearing? White velvet? <laughs> well, it was I mean, his wedding. Maybe who's it? Liberace? Was it sequin? <laughs> I don't know. But whatever decision he made, he should have known the risks before he went yeah. in. And yeah. and so no. Absolutely, he should uh, he should have to uh, bear uh, the cost of that um, completely. I mean, the fact that he even even think of of kind of shilling that off onto uh, a yeah. friend makes me question yet more of his choices. <laughs> Jason's from Seattle. It might have been a flannel jacket. Yeah, yeah that's actually. true. It could have been. It could have been. Hurt. But you can get you can get wine out of flannel pretty easily. And if he really really is from Seattle, wouldn't he not care because his back's behind him and he can't see it? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> There's a little love letter to you, Seattle. All right, Jason. No, no, I, I actually I love Seattle, uh, but uh, no, you go into any environment like that, and and, and etiquette would would definitely um, suggest rules would, of engagement yeah, of would say you're responsible when you go into a situation like that. All right, there's your answer, Jason. This next question comes from Joan, and Joan asks, "How do you get super helpful holiday party guests to stop being so super helpful in the kitchen?" By giving them something else to do, that 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 is a classic problem. And and so what what I what I do uh, when because I I have members of well let's just say this happens to me. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> I, I make sure that I have certain jobs that are set up just. For them, oh, nice. it's almost like a PlayStation. Look, you <laughs> peel the potatoes. Like, you want to help? Peel the potatoes. First off, nobody wants to peel potatoes. Yeah, but out. I just make sure that there are a few things that could be helped with that mm-hmm. that I can assign. The quality of the work is not critical. Oh, That's the only way to do it because you don't want to shun people. You don't want to say, no, I've got it. Why don't you go watch TV? Because what that says is I don't appreciate you. Yeah. And that, that's not hospitality. That's, that's not hospitable. So have, have some jobs laying around that you just you don't care that much about. Yeah. Sure. And then they're like, well, what, are we, what are we going to do with these peanuts I just shelled? And you're like, oh, nothing. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, those are for later. Yes. Well, I'm gonna, we're going to make those into peanut butter later. That's right. Yeah. Later. Thanks for your help. Uh, Here's something from Jose via Facebook. And he says, do you make a special non-alcoholic punch-slash-eggnog-slash-holiday drink for the loved one in recovery? I, um, whenever I entertain during the holidays, I make sure that there is a, um, a, a high-quality non-alcohol 
beverage. Mm-hmm. Because look, a lot of people um, are going to be designated drivers during the holiday. A lot of people want to have maybe one drink and then lay off and, and have something else. So I think it's my responsibility as a host to always have and I'm not just talking about like pouring ginger ale in a cup and saying, there, you loser. I mean, a, a, yeah. I put real I put real effort into making usually a tea-based punch, um, which is, is something that I like what? a lot with some real complex flavors and some bitters and maybe some tonic water so that it's it's something that you taste and you're like, wow, that's really, you know, somebody really put some work into that. So I always make sure that I, that I have a non-alcoholic beverage around. We have one last question, and this comes from a guy named Dana in Costa Mesa, California. And Dana writes... How do you deal with the fact that people always ask you food questions? How would you recommend someone at a holiday dinner avoid that type of question that they've just grown tired of? So I think he's asking that for you specifically. How do you deal with people probably must constantly ask you food questions? I answer them. Or if I don't know the answer, I make one up because I don't want to disappoint them. But do you not get tired after a while? It's just like, oh, man, like everywhere. No. I mean, if I get tired of anything, it's the assumption that I know of nothing else of of the world or human Mm. experience Mm. other than cooking. You know, but I mean, if, if you specialize in something, you have to accept the fact that people, if they value you, are going to ask questions for that. So if people stop asking me those, I'm going to have to start worrying. <laughs> oh, no, you'll be out of a job. But what should we ask you about, though, uh, other than food? What's a, what's a specialty you're not often asked about? All right. So there's nothing else that I actually know about. But hey, that doesn't matter. <laughs> Alton Brown. Check out his new cookbook, Everyday Cook. And if you have questions about how to behave, email us via dinnerpartydownload.org and we'll find someone of note to answer them. Or you can peruse our etiquette archives featuring wisdom from the likes of Mel Brooks and Angelica Houston. All right, coming up, comedian Nick Offerman advocates peace on earth and goodwill towards waiters. That's right. When this special holiday edition of the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. You've joined us in the midst of our 2016 holiday episode. Hooray. Uh, hooray. And holiday specials are a long-running tradition, of course. The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. There are, as we heard a few minutes ago, beloved holiday albums. Mm-hmm. And now in the age of the internet, there are holiday memes. That's right. And the star of one of those is a big bearded guy named Nick. Not the saint. It's Nick Offerman. Mm-hmm. He and his robust mustache starred as the character of Ron on seven seasons of the hit TV sitcom Parks and Recreation. He also runs a woodworking shop, and he has a new book out about woodworking. But most germane to our purposes today, last year he appeared in a viral internet parody of those Yule Log videos. Yeah, instead of a crackling fireplace, it showed Nick sitting beside a fireplace, (laughs) serenely sipping scotch. Host that many a holiday party played that video on an endless loop last year. Oh, yes. We asked Nick how it came to be. They say it's nice work if you can get it. (laughs) Not that. Uh, (laughs) You know what? It's one of the many incredible pieces of good fortune that came to me from Parks and Recreation. Uh, Mm. On the show, Ron loved Lagavulin, and it turned out it was both my favorite already and also the favorite of Mike Schur, the incredible genius who created Parks and Rec uh, with Greg Daniels. And so eventually we plugged the whiskey so much on the show that we eventually (laughs) got in touch with Lagavulin, and we ended up going... We shot an episode where Amy Poehler's character, Leslie Nope, gives Ron a treasure hunt 
that ends at the Lagavulin distillery <laughs> on the island of Isla in the Hebrides in Scotland. And yeah, I mean, I imagine being an actor, being me, and, and you get handed this job, and then you're on a boat, and then you turn around, and you are at Lagavulin. <laughs> I kind of hate you right now. I, I cried my eyes out. So we... we Developed a, uh, a a really warm friendship, and so uh, we've done three batches of commercials for them. We were getting ready to do a batch last year for the holidays, and one of our brilliant writers named David Phillips, he just tossed out that idea. What if we shoot Nick silently so that it's like the Yule Log <laughs> video? And we all just said, holy <laughs> this is either going to be a, a complete turd or it's going to... It's going to be amazing. And yeah, <laughs> and we, we set it up and we shot one take for 45 minutes. And That's what I was going to ask. How long did you sit there? It was 45 minutes and then it took off like crazy. And then somebody cut together like a 10-hour loop of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm grateful for nothing more than the, the fact that my sense of humor has allowed me to get paid to sit and drink scotch. Like, the the better I do, the less I have to. Yeah. They're yeah. like, what if we just shoot you doing nothing? And I said, great. Maybe next year uh, you could shoot me sleeping. Yeah. Um, like, what? Uh, how could this get more lazy? But still, there, there there is some acting in it. You have to maintain this look of serenity. Yeah. For you said you shot for forty five minutes. How did you? How did you do that? I'm I'm a mellow guy. I mean, I just uh, <laughs> it does take um, a lot of focus, and it's a it's a meditative act. You know, you uh, they say okay, three, two, one, do nothing. And <laughs> a, a funny note is that um, you know, as you could imagine, uh, people who are selling alcohol are very careful with good reason about telling people to use it responsibly and, you know, yeah. not uh, not encouraging people to get <laughs> faced. Yes. And yeah. so the rep for, for the company was, was there at the Yule Log, and they, they re really did some math. And they said, like, I forget how many sips I take, three or four. But <laughs> no like, way. Interesting. Th they get out a chart, and they're like, look, it's okay. Like, you could take three sips. And so they would, like, give me the nod. I'm like, okay, 15 minutes has gone by. You can drink it again. <laughs> and you're like, awesome. At last I get to do something. A lot of thought goes into it, um, what ends up being a pretty simple-looking task. Was each sip just incredibly exciting for you, though? It was, although uh, what I do sitting there for 45 minutes is I, I go into a daydreaming state, you know. It's not like I'm sitting there going, come on, you know, God, how long yeah. has it been? Instead, I, I honestly, uh, because I'm often in that state in some sort of acting or showbiz job, my go-to channel, if I need a daydream, is I just immediately start thinking about the next shop project. And so <laughs> Witch shopping, yeah. it's quite enjoyable. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to cut out those ukulele fronts oh, sweet sweet maple um oh time for another drink terrific <laughs> what a nice surprise after you're you know you're paid to sit and drink scotch for 45 minutes do you like over tip your barista or something like when you encounter someone who's actually you know not that you didn't do work for your money nick but well you know that like later that day are you just uber generous with with all of your your tipping and well while I never waited tables, every single other person in my life was waiting tables. 
while I was like an actor trying to make it myself. I was hanging lights for Disney at one yeah, point. Yeah. Or I was, you know, mm. I'm, I'm working Building as decks. a scenery carpenter. I was hustling, yeah. Yeah. And so now that life has been so good to me, um, I just started tipping like crazy. <laughs> and when people get into arguments about tipping, I find that really upsetting because by and large, if you can afford to go to a, a restaurant, what's two bucks going to kill you, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. but the person that's waiting tables is busting their ass literally for tips. And, and so, yeah. you know, I feel like if we can afford to go out for steak and a drink, give an extra $3. Don't be such a tight ass. A lovely holiday sentiment. <laughs> Nick Offerman, his new book about woodworking is called Good Clean Fun. And there are rumors a new Offerman holiday video is in the works. Stay tuned. All right. And now, after all that talk about scotch, it seems like a perfect time for cocktails. This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened in history and then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our semi-world famous history lesson with booze. And we start, as always, with the history part. Around this time, 32 years ago, the song Do They Know It's Christmas was recorded. You've likely heard the tune. Our friend Michelle Philippi is here to tell its origin story. New Wave music was mainly known for flashy videos and enormous hair. But in 1984, Bob Geldof used it to fight hunger. It made sense. Bob fronted New Wave band the Boomtown Rats. But he'd also been a social justice activist since he was a teen. So when he saw a news report about mass famine in Ethiopia, he and Midge Ewer of the band Ultravox figured they'd raise cash for the cause by putting out a song about it. It's Christmas time. There's no need to be afraid. Except two problems. If they performed the song, it'd look like they were exploiting famine for fame and it probably wouldn't sell enough to feed a country. So Bob decided he'd just persuade dozens of the biggest pop stars in the world to perform the tune for them, for free. Bob claims it was kind of a breeze. He quickly got pals like Sting and Bono on board. Others just fell into his lap, like Spandau Ballet's Gary Kemp, who he cornered in an antique store. The hard part was recording them all. They got free studio time for just one day. So on November 25th, Bob and Midge had to tape 40 megastar musicians and mix the song in 24 hours. The session engineer finally got a chance to hit the bathroom at hour 16. Not everyone wanted to sacrifice for the project. For instance, UK politicians. Though Bob had promised 100% of the record sales would go to famine relief, they insisted on collecting sales tax. So Bob relentlessly shamed them in the media, till they gave in and let the tax go to charity too. Geldof hoped Do They Know It's Christmas would raise a few hundred thousand bucks. It did, plus over 10 million bucks more. It was the fastest selling track in UK history, a million copies in its first week alone a record it held for 13 years. And it inspired the American charity tune, We Are the World. In 2010, Bob Geldof told London's Telegraph newspaper, quote, I am responsible for the two worst songs in history. We are the, we are the children. 
still a cheeky punk rocker at heart, that Bob Geldof. All right, so that is the history. Now for the drink to serve with it, we are speaking with Melanie Schmidt. She is a bartender at the British gastropub King's Row in Pasadena, California, because, of course, the song is British. Melanie, you heard the story. What drink did that inspire? Uh, today I'm making the old brew. The old, the old brew, but it's inspired by a new way of song. I know. <laughs> it's a twist. All right. I designed a uh, cocktail in the old-fashioned style, mostly to bring together a whole list of ingredients because of all the musical artists that got together, I kind of wanted to follow in that pattern. How do we bring a bunch of things together and get them to work harmoniously? Ah, I see. So you're, so you're starting with the drink, the old-fashioned. In that same style. Okay. Of the old-fashioned and kind of an iced coffee going back to raising money for Ethiopia. Oh, right, Ethiopian coffee. Yeah, their biggest export right now is coffee. So, all right, so you start with with coffee? Yeah, it's called Fair Cafe, and it's a coffee liqueur, and it's really, really wonderfully made. There's a lot of care put into it. And it's made with fair trade ingredients? Is that why the name is? Yeah, it's called Fair Trade because it it is a fair trade product. Perfect. Yeah, and then we're also using uh, Rittenhouse Rye, which is from Kentucky. Rye whiskey. Yep, and then we're going to use Zaya Rum, which is from Trinidad, and then we're also using Maletti, which is an Amaro from Italy. My God. Yeah, it's super, super delicious. And again, in the old-fashioned style, we're going to use some bitters from actually Los Angeles. There's a company called Miracle Mile Bitters, and they do this one that's toasted pecan. So it's super delicious. And, And a little Christmassy. Yeah, this drink can be served hot or cold. So if it's really cold outside and you're looking for something to kind of warm you up, you can do it in a hot toddy style. Wonderful. Is that it? And then it gets an orange twist on the top because Rittenhouse is 100 proof, super boozy, super strong. 100 proof. So so you get maybe not the pure glow of giving to charity, but a, a pleasant feeling nonetheless yes. after drinking this. Yes. The Old Brew Cocktail, courtesy of King's Row in Pasadena, California. And by the way, Brendan, the song that displaced Do They Know It's Christmas as the biggest ever UK single? I do not know. Elton John's Candle in the Wind, 1997. Ah. Proceeds from which also went to charities. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. A charitable bunch, those Brits. I like how they work. It seems like they learned a lot from that whole Scrooge thing. I guess it, it had an impact. All right, and that brings us nearly to the end of this holiday party for your ears. But we want to leave you with what we call a guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is Richard Lawson. Regular listeners know him as an esteemed member of our Small Talk cabinet, providing us with odd news of the week. Early in his career, he was, in our opinion, the most entertaining TV recapper in the world. But he's also got an encyclopedic knowledge of film, and he's now a film critic for Vanity Fair. Here's Richard to introduce his list and to spice up your holiday movie cues. I'm Richard Lawson, the film critic for Vanity Fair, and I wanted to highlight Christmas movies that you wouldn't actually think are Christmas movies. They're not the traditional It's a Wonderful Life or White Christmas, but they are movies that either take place at Christmas or have a sort of... Christmassy vibe, whether it's Bruce Willis killing terrorists or it's Kate Blanchett having a sort of sad, fraught lesbian romance. As you may have guessed from the Bruce Willis reference, uh, the first movie I wanted to talk about is Die Hard 2. People often mention Die Hard the first as a Christmas movie that you wouldn't expect to be one, but Die Hard 2 also takes place over the holidays. I think in some ways it's the bigger, dumber Die Hard movie, certainly, compared to the slimmer, muscly first movie, but I I think it's a little bit more entertaining, if you can believe it. Uh, So Bruce Willis is traveling over the holidays trying to get back to his long-suffering wife, 
stuck at the airport, which we can all relate to during holiday travel. Uh, and then, what you know, it terrorists take over the airport and are threatening to crash planes. So Bruce, with the help of a couple other people, but mostly him by himself, has to save the day by really killing a lot of terrorists. And, you know, it's snowy outside, and um, everyone's kind of dressed in white with these big furry uh, hoods, and it just, it does feel Christmassy. Come on, let's go! Despite the grimness of what's happening. I think the Die Hard movies have a sort of robust 80s-ness to them. They're simpler. The special effects aren't the kind of main deal. The, the, the main attraction is Bruce Willis. I think you could argue that the Fast and the Furious movies have a similar pull. Maybe they should do a Christmas movie. And then for number two, it's, I'm going to take something of a left turn. 2015's Carol which was directed by Todd Haynes and stars Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara as not exactly star-crossed lovers in the 1950s, but, you know, certainly experiencing the pains of the love that dare not speak its name. The film takes place over several months, but the real focus of it when Carol and Therese are getting together is at the holiday season. In fact, Therese is working the holiday shift wearing a little Santa hat at her department store when Kate Blanchett approaches her to buy a train set. Where'd you learn so much about train sets? Oh, I read. Too much, probably. That's refreshing. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I like the hat. I think that what, what Carol embodies best about the holidays is a sense of sort of loneliness, but also a coziness, a winteriness that can be cold, but also if you have the right person to cuddle up to, it can feel kind of good. And then for my third pick, I'm going to take a little license and pick two movies just because they're in the same genre. They're superhero movies. I don't think you're even allowed legally to talk about movies anymore these days without talking about superheroes. Uh, the first one is Batman Returns. Tim Burton's second Batman film, which takes place during some Tim Burton-y version of Christmas. You know, there's a tree lighting ceremony that gets rudely interrupted by the penguin. It's just, it's a really odd but creative Batman movie before they really tilted into nonsense and then tilted all the way back towards the Christopher Nolan dark, serious, realistic movies. You know, for a kid, which is what I was when I first saw Batman Returns, it combined great things like Batman and Christmas, so you, you can't beat it. And my second superhero Christmas movie that you maybe don't think is a Christmas movie is Shane Black's funny, weird Iron Man 3 that has a long segment where Tony Stark, Robert Downey Jr., ends up in a small town over Christmas time and has an interaction with the precocious little boy who teaches him something about life and himself, which, you know, feels a little bit Scrooge-esque. So, uh, who's home? Well, my mom already left for the diner, and Dad went to 7-Eleven to get scratchers. I, I guess he won, because that was six years ago. Hmm. Which happens, Dad's leave. No need to be a about it. Here's what I need. A laptop, a digital watch, a cell phone, the pneumatic actuator from your bazooka over there, map of town, a big spring, and a tuna fish sandwich. What's in it for me? Salvation. I think the unifying thing uh, about all of these movies is that while there are bad things happening, the holidays are survivable. If Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara can survive the rigid 
social strictures of the 1950s or Bruce Willis can survive, you know, an onslaught of dozens and dozens of terrorists, you can probably make it through dinner with your family and maybe even a little bit of present opening. Richard Lawson, film critic for Vanity Fair and a host of its awards season podcast, Little Gold Men. He's also the only guy who files Carol next to Die Hard 2. <laughs> totally. Which makes me wonder, will we get a Carol 2? <laughs> no. Carol 2, Carol Harder, I guess would Are be Are you the... listening, Hollywood? Please do it. The world needs a Carol Harder. Uh, folks, that's the dinner party download for this week. And whether you're a first-time listener or you've been tuning in since we were wee pine saplings, thank you for listening. And if you missed even a minute of the show, you can find it via podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, and you can keep up with us on Twitter and Facebook, where Rico just hosted a video giving you advice on how to navigate your holiday parties. Go look at it. You can also see Brendan's comments where he teased me mercilessly. Naturally. Thanks, as always, to the folks in our workshop, senior producer Jackson Musker, associate digital producer Christina Lopez, and assistant producer Christian Coons. Our intern is Kathleen McGovern, Ben Tolliday, engineered. Enjoy your holidays, everyone, and bon appétit.